Fisher to invite Martin to come and speak now. Thank you so much, Dave. And we're moving today to the book of Acts, as you're all aware. And I'd love you to turn to the first chapter of the book of Acts. If you have a Bible in any format, let's have the text before us. I'm going to be reading a few passages as we go through the story today. And I'd love to introduce you to two characters in the book of Acts who you probably don't think about very much. They're coming up on the screen now. And uh, these are the two people who really helped us have this book in the first place. One, obviously, is the writer Luke. I wonder whether you've ever thought about Luke and thought about what an amazing guy he was. He's the most influential non-Jew in the New Testament era because he wrote two books of the New Testament and gave, this, gave them to us. And an interesting thing about him is he was a doctor who loved writing and literature and history. Have you ever, ever known anyone quite like that? Uh, you know, there's a doctor who loves writing and history sitting right in front of me here. His name is Dr. Patterson. And he is... Um, uh, uh, I wouldn't say exactly a modern-day equivalent of Luke, but, you know, he's trying. He's trying hard because he's writing a lot of stuff, writing a lot of history, writes a magazine. He writes down notes from every sermon I give, and he's been doing it for more than 20 years. So he's a true friend. Anyway, Luke was an amazing guy. He got converted. We don't know how. We don't know where. He met Paul, which is a dangerous thing to do in the New Testament. If I'd been in the New Testament, I'd have tried not to meet Paul because he always sort of disturbed your life. He said to Luke, Come, can you just travel with me? I've got a few jobs to do. I'm planting a few churches here and there, and I need a few traveling companions. And off went Luke with Paul. And then Paul said, Oh, I've got to go back to Israel and to Jerusalem to give some money to them. And he got back to Jerusalem, and they banged him up in prison. For two years. And so what's Luke supposed to do? He traveled all the way back to Israel. He didn't even live in Israel. He probably lived some other country. And the guy he took him there ended up in prison. And historians have been thinking about this, and they think probably during those two years he started writing. And perhaps even interviewing some of the eyewitnesses. Some people have even speculated that Luke interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus, to give us the birth narratives in that two-year period. Anyway, what about our other friend here? It's all very well to be a doctor in a different country and your friend's in prison and you're writing a book, but people who are writing a book don't get paid very much until the book comes out. And when Luke writes, he writes at the beginning to most excellent Theophilus. So who's he? Well, we don't exactly know. But my belief, and many scholars agree with me, I'm glad to say, or I agree with them, more likely. I think the most likely thing is he was a Christian who became Luke's patron and paid for him to have the time and resources to write, which is why Luke dedicated the gospel and his book Acts to Theophilus, a hidden character in the New Testament to whom you and I owe a considerable debt. And Luke has left the story in the end of the gospel at a 
tantalizing point, absolutely tantalizing, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he's with his apostles, and he's saying, look, hang around, hang around in Jerusalem for a bit longer, because something big's going to happen, and it's going to start the next phase of things. End of book. Right? It's like these uh, modern writers who, they, 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 put, they leave you on a knife edge at the end of their book, so you have to buy the next one. Have you ever fallen into that trap? Then, you, then, then you, when you come to the end of the next one, there's another knife edge moment. You've got to buy the next one. And then you end up buying all seven or all ten. Well, Luke never got more than two. But his first book leaves the apostles in a really astonishing situation. Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he keeps making appearances here and there. But they don't quite know what's going to happen next. And so with that in mind, we turn to the beginning of Acts. And we're going to read the first nine verses. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you heard me speak about for John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, he defers that question into the future. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after that, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. This is the scene. Jesus talking to his apostles, uh, talking to them over 40 days. He's coming and he's going. He appears and he disappears and he's meeting them and he's talking to them. They're in this amazing situation. I wonder what you would have done. There you are in Jerusalem. You don't live in Jerusalem. You happen to be there because Jesus died there. Jesus keeps appearing and disappearing. There's long periods of time. You're in rented accommodation. What do you do? Play cards? Go to the market? Go to the temple, hang around. Ever been in that situation where you've got to hang around for a long period of time? Ever been on a railway station for seven hours because the train's late? Or in an airport for an interminable period of time? Ever had that experience? We're just waiting and waiting. What do we do? You fill time. You know, you play cards, you go on your electronic games, you read your book, you fall asleep, you look at the television, it's boring, you look at the sport, but you've seen that one before, and so it goes on and on and on. Ever been in that situation? That's how they felt at that time. They were just waiting, 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 something's going to happen. But one thing they had in mind was this particular word in Acts 1 verse 8, which is coming up on the screen now. And this is like the theme of the whole book of Acts in one sentence. Because this describes what's going to happen in the whole 28 chapters. You'll receive power... When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, right here, in all Judea, that's the area nearby, in Samaria, a little bit further away, and to the ends of the earth. Now, these guys weren't well-traveled. They came from Galilee. No easy jet. 
No package holidays. No spare cash. No motorways. No cars. No internet booking. They just lived in Galilee. They fished. They did their jobs. And Jesus said, you're going to go to the ends of the earth. They've got a lot to think about. Something rather dramatic is going to happen to them. And it's to do with when the Holy Spirit comes on you. How we know when the Holy Spirit comes on us, Jesus just smiles. Don't worry, you'll know. You'll know. Something's going to happen. That's going to change their destiny. And this is the backdrop for the whole book of Acts. Because as we read the book of Acts, they go from one place to another place. Strangely enough, they start in Jerusalem. Strangely enough, they start planting churches in Judea, the immediate area. Strangely enough, the next place is Samaria. And strangely enough, they go beyond Samaria, right the way through the Roman Empire and beyond. And they're planting churches wherever they go. And it's like the template for the early church. And I wonder, is it the template for the modern church too? And that's the question we're going to ask at the end. Acts 2, verse 1. Maybe you're familiar with this story. There was a Jewish feast called Pentecost. Thousands of people had gathered into the city from all over the world. Jews who'd come from different places. And this is what happened. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. By the way, that all is not just the 12 apostles. They'd appointed a new one after one had committed suicide, but about another hundred or so disciples. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So they knew this is the moment. But it's what happens next that's really interesting and very rarely thought about in any real detail. Now, they were staying, verse 5, in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, people who traveled hundreds of miles. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because they heard uh, they each one heard their own language was being spoken. They come from different nations. They spoke all sorts of different languages. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? They could tell by the accent that they came from Galilee. They were local boys, uneducated. Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts from Judaism, Cretans, Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Imagine we had a a, a, a delegation of people from every country in Europe came to our Sunday morning meeting. Lithuanians, Poles, Germans, French, Italians, Spanish, Portuguese, and the rest. They, just, they were just coming through. They were touring the country. And suddenly, from the stage, our worship group started singing... German, French, Czech, Slovak, Portuguese, Spanish, one by one. And then Dave started speaking in fluent Russian. Can you imagine that? <laughs> and there's a guy on the back row saying, and there are people saying, what's going on here? 
They're all speaking my language. They're Brits, and Brits don't speak other people's languages. It's a rarity to find a Brit who speaks two languages. But we've heard 20 languages coming, and they're worshipping God, and they're saying in my language um, that Jesus is the Messiah. There'd be a real stir, wouldn't there, if that happened? People from all over Europe were sitting in here, and suddenly they heard that. There would be a stir. Well, this was even more dramatic because the distances were great. Many Jews lived in modern-day Iraq and in modern-day um, Iran. And in modern-day Turkey, and they were all there. And in modern-day Egypt, there was a huge population in Egypt. And in modern-day Rome, there was a big population in the center of Rome and in modern-day Greece. And all of those people traveling back, they, they, they were all Jews, but their first language was the language of the country they lived in, the day-to-day language they lived in. And they saw these guys who were Galileans, and they know that Galileans are pretty thick and Galileans are pretty uneducated. Galileans don't speak a lot of languages. Galileans don't have a lot of money. Galileans don't travel anywhere. But they're speaking my languages. Fluently. Now, in this moment, God was speaking prophetically at the most powerful level. And we pass over the narrative because it seems a bit odd and we want to get on to the preaching, which is the next bit. But Luke takes the trouble to write and tell us exactly what happens. He writes all these different nations. In fact, we've got a picture, I think, of these different nations. Look, that's the places where people came from. That's the places where people came from when they were in Jerusalem and they heard Peter, James, and John, and uh, and Thomas, and all the others speaking in languages they'd never learnt and never learnt at school. They were astonished. Some were speaking Arabic. Some were speaking fluent Latin. I mean, we spent 150 years trying to get away from Latin in this country. Bit by bit, we've managed to do it. Fluent Latin. Goodness me. And God was speaking in this moment. And he was saying that just at this time in history, the Messiah who'd come in Jerusalem was not coming just for the Jewish people. He was coming for the nations of the world and he gave a prophetic sign that people who spoke these languages would be praising God in a very, very short time. The Spirit was coming to send the the apostles out on an incredible mission and it was starting right there in the day of Pentecost. And there was this amazing prophetic sign. And my contention is, From that day until this, the work of the Holy Spirit is to reach every people group in this world. And not just every people group, to get into the subcultures in every nation, to get further and further and further into this world so that the gospel is heard throughout this world. Isn't that a wonderful thing? It started on the day of Pentecost, dramatically, by this incredible sign. Now, Peter knew his moment had come, and if he'd missed the queue here, he'd have been in real trouble. He thought, I'd better stand up and speak. I think God's calling me to get off my backside and start saying something. I've been hanging around, playing cards, going to the market, not quite working out what to do, and suddenly, the moment has come This is obviously the Spirit. We've just got to start telling them what it's all about. 
So he stood up and he spoke. And I give you just a few verses, verse 22. I'm going to give, give you a couple of verses to summarize his message. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Verse 36, just bringing this message to a conclusion, he says, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah or Christ. So he preached the gospel to them in a nutshell. This sign is about what happened about this man. He wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't a charlatan. He wasn't just a wonder worker. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior. He's the one who died for sins. He's the one who's bringing salvation. And so Peter socked it to them in no uncertain terms. He gave them the message. And verse 37, we see an astonishing response. When the people heard this, they were Cut to the heart. That's the sign of the convicting power of the Spirit. And Peter said to the, uh, and Peter, uh, and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? They suddenly realized what was going on, something they'd never really understood. This Jesus is the Messiah. They've got to do something about it. These are locals. These are people from all over the world, who are there. What are we going to do about it? And Peter said. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Many of you know this story well. But notice here five ingredients to their response. Five things that really matter. Number one is real faith. And when they were cut to the heart, that means they were beginning to believe that Jesus really is the Son of God. And they were Faith was rising in them, but they didn't know what to do about it. They realized they were wrong. They realized he was right. So the first ingredient of, of this miracle of salvation, and we, we need all these dimensions to be functioning for, for the whole process to work well. The first ingredient is real faith, what we call nowadays saving faith. People must reach out and say, I believe in him. Not just that he'd be convenient in my life to solve a few of my problems, but he really is the Son of God. And the second thing, what does Peter tell them that they need to do? They've got that faith emerging within them, but he said, you need to repent. That is, you've got to change your mind. You've got to change the way you think in order to believe and in order to follow. And so true salvation comes when there is true change of heart, and that involves change of thinking. You're no longer at the center of your universe. There's no longer many gods. It turns out there's only one way for salvation. And thirdly, baptism. Believers' baptism. What an amazing 
doctrine. I don't need to preach that to you now, but we hold this to be very central. One reason is because it's taught very clearly here. It's a command. Be baptized when you believe and repent. Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive his presence and his power. And one of the themes of this series is that all the way through the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is animating, energizing, strengthening, changing, motivating, and moving the church onwards. And finally, notice something that's very often missed out. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. When we become believers, it's not just on the day. It's not just your baptism testimony. It's not just that day on the Alpha Course. It's not just that moment. It's a decision to be a disciple, which means you then suddenly realize you're engaging with a culture which has different values to you. And there were different values in Judaism. And they had to throw some of those values away. And there are different values in our society around us. And if we're following Christ, we find there's a clash going on frequently. And then we need to save ourselves from the corrupt generation. And the way to do that is to become disciples and to discipline your lives to follow Christ wholeheartedly. That's the fifth ingredient. Faith, repentance, baptism, receiving the Holy Spirit, and becoming active disciples. So this story is the launch pad for the whole of the book of Acts. Things move on very, very quickly from this point. The Spirit comes, Peter preaches, many people get saved, a church is born in Jerusalem, and things move on from there. And churches spread across the Roman Empire. Now, this is all very well. What's the relevance for you? What's the relevance for me? What does it matter what happened 2,000 years ago? I believe this is the relevance. What was started in the book of Acts is not yet complete, is it? The world has not heard the gospel in every place. There are millions of people who have not heard the salvation message as we speak today. Millions and millions of people. And so that power of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost is still in the church, animating and energizing the church to get the message out and not to settle back for where it is, and this is what the book of Acts is all about, is getting the message out. Now, I'd like to illustrate this by talking in a moment just about some of the things that we're actually involved with and have been over the last few years. Things we're doing locally are very, very important. Things we're doing in our community, in the county, social action, alpha, evangelism. But we've been involved also in strategic initiatives for many years that are actually still planting churches in the 21st century. Because what they did as they went out from Jerusalem is they planted churches. They didn't just 
witness uh, at random. They've formed gathered communities. We need to gather these communities into living beings wherever we go. And today, in today's world, even though there are a lot of churches, there are a lot of places where there aren't enough churches and there aren't enough living beacons. Would you agree with that? Even in our country, in many parts, churches are closing rather than opening. In many cities with a population increase, churches are becoming more and more invisible. So even in our nation, there's a great burden. Now, what things have we been involved with in this area? We've sent missionaries out to do all sorts of things, Lizzie White and people like that doing great jobs. But I'm going to focus on people who are involved in church planting around the world, even today, just as an example of the ongoing commitment we need to the things that started in the book of Acts. Let's start putting a few photos up on the screen. In our local community, since 2003 in our local area, we've been involved actively in establishing four new churches that did not exist in 2003 when we started. Hope Church in North Shrewsbury with Nick and Tracy Priggis there. Beacon Church in Whitchurch, we started. Terry's there this morning. As far as I understand it, it's the only um, gathered evangelical church community in the town these days. That's significant. We helped resource a church in Wrexham, Gateway Church. I met the leader again yesterday at a conference. They're doing well. Um, and only last Sunday, members of our church, Mike and others, were at um, Hope Church in Admiston with Roland West there, which is an embryonic church that's developing there. So we've been involved in church planting in that context. Think of a few other examples. Here's another one coming up. Some of you will recognize and have heard of Richard O'Carroll. That's him and his wife, Judy. Well, over a decade ago, Richard sat in this hall where you're seated as a teenager who was uncommitted to Christ, and he heard an internationally renowned speaker come and talk about the gospel and about Islam particularly, and Richard came to me very urgent at the end, and he and I walked through that door, and we sat in that coffee lounge over there, and he said, I need to commit my life to Christ. And I need to commit my life to the kingdom of God, and I feel even now a call to Muslims. And he did that in this hall. And from that moment forward, he set his heart to what he's doing now, planting churches in the Middle East. He's just about to launch a second church plant in a Middle Eastern city in a second country. And that happened in this hall. And I remember the moment as if it was yesterday. Because the book of Acts is still for, for today. And many of us are not called to go. But where we're going to come to at the end is we're called to stay and resource those who go. We don't oversee that directly, but we have input into it. Uh, Dave has a great friendship with Rich, and they are doing an incredible job, and occasionally we give a report on that. That's just another example. Let's see if we can think of any other examples. What comes up on the screen? I remember the day when Phil Whittle was a teenager in our church in the youth group with dreadlocks. <laughs> wondering which direction his life might go. I was also wondering the same question and offered a few hints to him. And the first hint was church planting, and he went to Hope Church, North Shrewsbury, and we thought, that's pretty good. But then he said, having got married to this delightful lady, Emma, 
that he felt called to Sweden, and now he's church planting in Stockholm and pioneering amazingly in Stockholm, as some, some of you know, and we still have a great relationship with him. Is that the book of Acts today? Churches are closing in Stockholm. Sweden's a very secular country. What's the Holy Spirit want to do? This is one of our members who sat in this hall many times, who was in our youth group, who learned leadership principles in this building, in this community many years ago. Look where he is now. Let's keep going. We have a very good friend in our Christ Central Network by the name of Steve Hurd. Some of you may know Steve Hurd. You may have seen him. He's a, a Yorkshire man, true bred. He's as Yorkshire as they come. And he's an evangelist in the heart. He's a heart evangelist. And he went a few years ago and he planted a church in York. And that grew really well. Then he went to Huddersfield and he's just planted a church in Huddersfield. And now from Huddersfield, he's planting a church in Halifax. And then God spoke to him about the northern cities of Britain, particularly in Yorkshire and Lancashire and the northeast and places like that. And he saw a spiritual wilderness and Steve has got a vision that there should be 20 new churches planted uh, in these cities, in these urban areas that people are forgetting, that are not popular, they're not on the map. And he's saying, God wants to move there. There are going to be new churches planted there. And there's a conference launching that initiative coming up in a few weeks' time, which you'll hear about shortly. And he's in our movement. Is this the book of Acts today? Is the book of Acts history? Or is the book of Acts DNA for the church. Where do we go next? Here is Pastor Wycliffe and the churches that Terry and Helen and team and Nick Blackbourne and others visited in western Kenya. I haven't been there, but this man is planting churches in the rural districts of western Kenya. Who knows? We might get more strategically involved in that. Africa has immense needs, and one of the greatest needs is to plant churches in every community. Let's keep moving. Now, the Bread Trust started with humanitarian aid, and many of you support the Trust, but most of the leaders we've been involved with have ended up planting churches all over Ukraine because that's one of the things they needed to do, especially when some of them were kicked out of the areas they lived in because a war broke out. And the guy in the middle, Igor Bogomas, and his wife, Tanya, many of you know who he is. We're sponsoring through the Bread Trust. He's now planting a church in the center of the country and overseeing at least six other church plants that are developing as we speak. Is this the book of Acts today? Is it history or DNA for the church? Are you getting my meaning? This is just our church and our involvement. I'm helping them out there in the Ukraine. Let's just keep going with a few other examples. I have a privilege of heading up a training school in the Christ Central Network. And as soon as we started in Sheffield, people in other countries said, can we come in on it and can we produce some videos? So we produced some videos. And one of the guys who said we wanted to come into it, his name was Reese Scott, and he's in Vancouver. And he's a South African. His wife's also South African. And they planted churches in England. Then they got felt called to Western Canada. And he's planted a church successfully in Vancouver in the last four years. And he said, Martin, can you come over and help me with training leaders? And I said, Reese, why do you want me to come over? He said, my vision is from Vancouver to plant churches in China and Japan. You what? Yes. Because there's a big Asian population in Vancouver. And some of them are already in the church. 
It's the book of Acts history. Forgive me for my repeating myself. Or is it the DNA of the church? Are you with me? These guys have got the message. He's interested in Hong Kong, China, Japan, Thailand, other countries in, in Asia because Vancouver's an incredibly good starting point. So we had an amazingly dynamic week last December as we looked at the church planters in Canada. We thought of a strategy by which they might one day be planting churches in China and other similar places from that base. The Acts, the book of Acts, lives today in the hearts of many people. We need to know the history, but we need even more importantly to know the DNA that God put in the church on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came down and the apostles and their friends began to speak in languages they didn't know. The Holy Spirit was saying, my word and Christ is going to get to those places and even beyond those places. And still the Holy Spirit is urging the church to see the bigger picture. And another one. Another person who said, can I have your videos from Sheffield, was a man called Joseph Mawila. We mentioned him earlier on. There's his wife, Lillian. I'm going out there in April to help them. Why am I helping them? Because they're planting churches in Zambia. They've got somewhere between 30 and 50 churches already. They've got no training resources. We're providing it. I'm going to go and see them. And they've got plans to plant churches all over Zambia. The need is great. It's like Kenya. They just desperately want to plant more and more churches on a biblical New Testament model and see more and more people saved. Is the book of Acts history? Or is the book of Acts the DNA of the church? Can you see what's happening? Because in the West, you see, we've got used to the idea the church is a static building. Those stones have been there a long time. And people come to that community and they worship and they go home again. And they come to that community and they go home and they worship again. And that model of church in the West, can I just tell you as clearly as I can, it's declining fast because those doors are beginning to close. Because the DNA of the church is being lost. Because the mission of the church is not being accomplished. The power of the Spirit is not being felt. And so the doors are closing and the nation looks on and says, we think it's the end of the road for the church, but the Holy Spirit knows better because he's bringing the DNA of the book of Acts back into the church even in the UK, and that includes you even if you didn't realize it. Because you're in Barnabas, sorry about that. If you don't find it comfortable, there are alternatives, but I'm not recommending them. I say stay. Most of you will never go to any of those places, and God mustn't, doesn't call you to do that. But I'll tell you what we've been called to do as a church, prophetically. Be a resource. Because in the New Testament, as we'll find later on, occasionally the really big church grew up, and it just kept resourcing other things that started. It happened in Antioch. It happened in Ephesus. You'll see a few examples later on in the series. And we've been called to be like one of those churches, to grow big and strong, to win people for Christ right here, our neighbors, our friends, but to have a big vision. And what kind of resources are we giving away? We put money into most of those churches. 
one of those Zambian students who's at the theological uh, college, they can't afford to even come to that. They can't even afford to travel across their country. We're paying for one of those students. You are, we're sponsoring one of those students right now. We've given money to Phil Whittle. We've helped all those churches that we planted in the area. Sometimes it's finance. Sometimes it's prayer. That's why we don't apologize for praying for other churches and things we're involved with. That's why we're praying this morning for a breakthrough of the Holy Spirit in Whitchurch, because they sure need it in Whitchurch, in that town. Sometimes it's leadership resources going out. I've been free to go out and do training and mentoring in other places that helps this mission, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity. That's another way we can do it. But sometimes it's you who might be called to go somewhere. And there might just be one or two people in the congregation here this morning who will feel the call of God even as I'm speaking. Four reflections. God's kingdom keeps on growing despite setbacks. We're called to serve God's kingdom and not just to enjoy our salvation. Western Christians like to enjoy the benefits of just the presence of God. It's good to do that. But the New Testament tells us to use those benefits for the benefit of others. And then they keep coming to us as well. We need local mission and church planting as a priority. What you're doing on your street, in your home, in your place of work is vital but there will be some going out from here and seeking the dynamic of the Holy Spirit to equip us for mission. Let's just go back to the map, Tom, just a couple of slides up, which I missed out. That just summarizes the countries we're involved with actively, where new churches are starting or have started recently, and you didn't even realize how much was going on, did you? That's what God has led us into up to this point. And the reason for that is the book of Acts is not just history. It's the DNA for the church. And the more we recover the biblical DNA, the more grace and strength God will give us, even here. And we are called to be a resource church. And all of us can play a part, even if that part is prayer and nothing else. Let's stand together. And let's have the musicians before us, please. We're going to sing in a moment, Here is Love, Vast as the Ocean, as a conclusion. This is not a Sunday for altar calls, but this is a Sunday for our reflection. It's like re-engineering of our thinking, so that we stay on a biblical template we want to see the kingdom grow throughout the world, and we're called to help pave the way. Father, we thank you for the wonderful book of Acts that we're beginning to study. We pray for rich enjoyment of it and learning from it in the weeks to come. We thank you for the fact that it is giving us some of the DNA of the church, some of the way the church should be, and we want to be that resource church, Father. We want to see your kingdom grow in many places. Please use us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And all the people said, Amen. Amen.
let's sing this beautiful hymn just thanking Jesus again that so much grace came from his death like a great fountain pouring out of grace and grace enough for the whole world not just for ourselves.